Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsor, Allergan, as well as with support from Kala Pharmaceuticals. Well, I just want to welcome everyone to this uh, special edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid uh, live video webinar. Uh, we do want to thank our, uh, the support from Allergan and Cala Pharmaceuticals for helping us uh, put this on. Um, every day, it seems like things change, minute by minute, hour by hour. Uh, the U.S. now has more active cases than any other country uh, in the world. And uh, we are trying to figure out what to do uh, with our families, with our work families, with our practice. And so before we get into today's program, I do want to just uh, mention a couple of names. Uh, the first name I want to mention is an ophthalmologist who's a hero. We need to all remember his name, Li Wenliang. He's a Chinese ophthalmologist who uh, really tried to alert the world about COVID-19. And unfortunately, he lost his battle with that. And so I want you all to remember him and his family in your prayers. Uh, there's also an ophthalmologist in Venezuela right now who is in the ICU. I learned about him through Ike Ahmed. Uh, his name is Luis Escaf. Uh, again, please keep him in your prayers. Um, this is going to impact all of us in different ways from staff to other ophthalmologists. We need to support each other in this time. Um, so just please uh, be mindful of that. And um, we're all in this together. Uh, Blake, I'm going to throw it over to you and you can introduce the uh, program for today. Thanks a lot, uh, Gary. And I want to echo uh, those statements. I think that uh, it's so important that we continue to come together, even though that we're apart. And uh, off the grid has been um, uh, sort of a healing place uh, to me to a large extent, not to mention a great place for information. Um, and I know that we're going to get some fantastic um, information and pearls uh, from our two panelists today, uh, Dr. Rob Weinstock in Florida and Dr. Uh, Liz Yu in Virginia. Um, so I um, wanted to uh, start off with you, uh, Dr. Yu, and uh, really just talk about, um, you know, how your practice is getting through this. Really the topic of today um, that, that so many of our listeners and people watching want to know is, what am I supposed to do uh, with my staff and, and with you know, my doctors and what am I telling my patients? And so I think that it'd be great to get a lot of different perspectives today, but can you just tell us a little bit uh, about how y'all have been weathering the storm? Sure, um, thanks for having me on. The first uh, word that comes to mind when I think of this is dynamic and mind-boggling. I mean, it seems like every single day there's a little bit of different nuanced changes that are occurring. Um, I'm part of a multi-specialty group where there are 20 providers, um, but we are under a larger umbrella um, with private equity consolidation that occurred last year. So our company itself has over 500 employees. That already, which I did not realize, takes us out of the realm of small business. Now, sure, being under this larger umbrella, we financially may be able to weather the storm better since there is that protection of having greater number. Um, I'll tell you, though, it has been a lot of work along the way to try to figure out exactly what to do from the doctor to, uh, to uh, stockholders as well as shareholders, um, our employed physicians, our optometrists, and all of those who support us in the clinic on the day-to-day. -day. That's to see how this affects each and every one of us. Um, it is a very difficult time where we are doing everything that we can. 
obviously um, in our unique situation right now, we're trying to, uh, with our staff, uh, utilize PTO, allow our staff to dip into upwards of 40 hours of PTO, and then see where we go from there. I've seen changes where some have decided to just go ahead and be uh, let go so they can uh, maybe uh, gather some unemployment status. Uh, within the staff itself that we are utilizing, we have five offices. So we're trying to have some staff that kind of rotate through so some hours can be gained for the care of our urgent patients who are throughout this entire area where we serve 1.6 million people. Have y'all gone down to one clinic, Liz, or have y'all, are you still, are all five still open for urgent and emergent cases or? So we have four clinics that are running that kind of spread across the Hampton Roads Tidewater area. Uh, and certainly our retina clinics are going to be the busiest because they do have the most urgent patients, patients who are on a timed cycle with their injections that are so pertinent and important to their vision. That really does bring up the point of elective versus elective urgent, urgent and emergent cases in terms of surgery. Uh, most of us have stopped operating. I did a few corneal transplants in this last week that were actually scheduled out into June and July, which we bumped up because I knew that, you know, without a clear end in sight, so important to take care of those who have the greatest visual needs. Uh, other than that, we really have to come down to seeing less than 400 patients total, where we were seeing 2,700 patients a day. Uh, unique times, it really makes you realize that that psychological component that vision has for our patients and the importance of vision and the well-being of their eyes, the number of urgent calls that are coming in are quite surprising. And so while we are trying to limit those that we see for the sake of everybody and our societal responsibility, we still have, we're, we're getting cases of viral conjunctivitis, other offices within the area, those who refer to us are completely closed. So we're serving a bigger community now. Right. Rob, uh, how are things in Florida right now? We see some hot spots popping up there. Walk me through a little bit about um, how this evolved in your practice and some, you know, sort of where you guys are right now and what you're seeing. So much like uh, Liz, we are pretty much shut down except for our main office. And we have a skeleton crew of, um, of our managers that are still trying to manage what's going on and handle the change in our infrastructure. And a skeleton OR team that's on emergency call for a retinal detachment or any other unusual procedure that might come up, but basically no surgery going on. And uh, we are uh, just trying to make, every day is a little different, trying to make decisions and manage the situation. We're really worried about our staff, obviously. We're really um, have bated breath waiting for this stimulus package to go through. And we're really banking on that because that is a vehicle for us to allow us to keep things going and pay our staff and keep operations going. So that's a critical part of that. We, but I don't know what that process looks like. I don't know if it's gonna take a week or a month or two months, how long the line is to get one of these loans. So there's a real grayness going on not only with how long is this going to last or that we're out of work, but also what to do with the staff. Do we furlough some? Do we lay some off? Do we um, do, how many do we keep around? Do we bring them all back right away? If we find out that this loan gets through, do you wait till you get the money and gone to the bank and you get the check so you have the funds to actually do that? 
when you go and take out a line of credit. I mean, there's so much going on. And then from the practice components, um, you know, the whole OD community is shut down here in Florida. So now we're being, like Liz said, a lot of patients are coming in to see us um, and we're having to come up with a call schedule and a very important and different triage schedule where we used to just say, hey, if you have any prior eye problem at all, come on in. We have emergent doctors, we have a pool of doctors that will see you for anything. We always have an open door policy, but now we're on the phone trying to make these executive decisions. You need somebody talented in the phone room. It can't just be a phone operator. It needs to be a doctor or an optometrist up there really supporting the phone staff so you can figure out who really needs to come in and who can wait. And, and a lot of that, like us, we, we figure that stuff out on the phone. So that's one of the challenges happening right now. Plus a lot of the doctors that we've furloughed for the time being, so they, they're not making any income, all of their patients need care. So we've come down to a core group of doctors as well. And now you have, um, once they go on a furlough status or have been laid off, they, they can't see patients. Um, they don't have malpractice covered. They're not covered under the, uh, the practice anymore. So now you have continuity of care issues. So all of these little logistics has us like full speed ahead with our managers trying to manage all this. And I mean, like many of you, I know you're all going through this. You must all be as emotionally exhausted as I am. Um, and then that does, that's not without the human side of the staff of worrying about people. Like some families have more needs than others. And we're trying to identify those people so we can help them in some format through this. And, and they don't know about going on unemployment, a lot of them. So we're having to help manage how to take them through that process. And uh, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with in my career, perhaps my life, except maybe in, you know, the, when, my, when my mom passed away, there's few things that I have had to deal with that have pulled at my heartstrings as much as, as this situation. Yeah, the, I mean, we all have to have hard conversations uh, at times throughout our training, uh, whether that's an intern year or otherwise. You know, I, I remember some of those hard conversations, but I'm going to remember the conversation I had with my staff last week uh, when, you know, one day I, we had a, a staff meeting and said, you know, we look at this as maybe one of three different scenarios happening. One is, and this was before everything got locked down. So this is us, you know, trying to prepare and, you know, we had a meeting after surgery and I said, you know, we're going to keep operating as long as we feel like it's safe and as long as we're allowed to and patients are willing to come and we'll continue the screening protocols that we had where we called patients ahead of time, uh, asking them if they had any symptoms or any exposures to anyone uh, who was sick, et cetera, um, practicing social distancing within the waiting room. Uh, so we said, you know, as long as we can keep going, we will. We, we know this is in, the work we do is important to our community and it's important for you all to have work. The second scenario is that, you know, maybe we go on a short-term shutdown and maybe it's a couple of weeks and we're going to offer you guys some benefits to try to stem that tide. Uh, maybe some additional PTO that you can earn back um, through the years um, and, and maybe some other, some other benefits that we can kind of all come together. And then I said, the third scenario is that, you know, we basically go in a, a lockdown mode where, you know, we're not allowed to come in and do elective surgery. And I said, you know, if that happens, it's really going to be the government that's going to need to come through because uh, no small business or really business of any sort has the resources to continue paying employees while there's no productivity. It's not that we don't want to, it's not that in our heart, we wouldn't love to continue doing that. It's just that there, there are certain impossibilities that we face. And, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful, honestly, that the, that people have been able to put, you know, partisan politics aside and get something done for the first time in a long time, it looks like 
We've had the family's first act that was passed that, that allowed patients to have additional benefits. And then the CARES Act hopefully gets passed today. Um, and, and Blake, what are your thoughts on that? I think you have some info on uh, the CARES Act, you know, what, what kind of things that might help um, our, our employees with? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it, so it did pass uh, the House, right? So now it's just waiting, awaiting the signature of the president, which, which, which you assume is going to happen, obviously. Um, you know, I think the big thing about the CARES Act um, is that it provides uh, a very robust um, uh, uh, furlough uh, uh, opportunity to still keep patients technically, you know, with your practice. They're still receiving benefits from you, uh, but they're not Please. working. Yeah, yeah, employees, uh, but they're not working, um, but they're still on your team. Um, and, you know, if you look at what they're doing, uh, you know, the CARES Act basically is going to give employees around $850 a week, um, which is uh, a lot. Uh, and it's, it's more than many of our technicians uh, that are you know, just starting uh, make per week, actually. So it's going to keep them whole. Um, and it's going to buy them time and keep them financially stable until it's time for them to get back in the game. So for us, you know, at first, a few days ago, actually, we were just considering the forgivable loan program where we're going to keep everybody employed. We're going to take the forgivable loan um, uh, to keep them employed and then start back. But this rolled out and we saw the opportunity to, to furlough instead what this does is not only is it going to, it's actually going to pay many of them more uh, initially, but also it buys us a little bit of time uh, strategically for getting ramp back up. For instance, if you just did the forgivable loan thing, well, the thing is that only lasts for about five payrolls or 10 weeks if you're paying every other week like we are. So that puts us at first of June, right? So we need to be ready to roll first of June. Well, we don't know if we necessarily are because everything's so uncertain. And at that point, we would be having be responsible for our payroll. So with the furlough option, actually, it gives you a little bit more time to bring them back on uh, as needed, as necessary, as we ramp up uh, for, for whenever we come out of this hibernation. So for us, we our, our sole focus, you know, with what option to do is what's the right thing for our staff, you know. What, what, what's the best thing that we can do to keep them financially stable throughout this process? Because we need a workforce whenever we come back. We have 125 employees. You can't just build that overnight. So we didn't want to do layoffs and things like that. For us, this furlough option uh, is, is much better. So looking forward to getting that, that signature uh, by the president. Liz and Rob, I'd love to get some, some thoughts on, um, number one, patient care strategies. Liz, you mentioned, you know, you're getting, you know, viral conjunctivitis patients and, and how, do you, how do you screen them? Are you doing that by telemedicine and trying to keep them out of the office? What are your, what are your approaches there? And, and also, I guess the follow-up with that is once, once certain areas start coming out of this, how do we know when it's okay to come back? Ugh, such great questions and interesting times, right? Like now HIPAA, you know, all, no right. whole part kind of thing. We can um, incorporate telemedicine into at least certain types of triaging and, and we're looking into those options right now. There's not a great answer and I know ASCRS put out a webinar on this yesterday. Um, we're trying to figure that piece out. With that being said, you're absolutely right because how do we triage those truly emergent patients versus those who may not be asymptomatic but they've got something that is truly site-threatening? And for example, the two viral conjunctivitis patients that came in uh, two days ago 
actually were already in stage two with pseudomembranes all throughout there. I, and I was shocked. I'm like, that means that there's an EKC going on. And the only saving grace is that we have some self-isolation going on to potentially limit wherever this is, what pocket it's coming from within the community. Um, so we do have, we have our optometrists who are actually within the triage all day long. So they're taking the bulk of the phone calls to assist with our triage team. Now they then pass it off in order to make sure that the, the timing of the appointment is scheduled appropriately, but this is the yay, nay, not now, come back in eight weeks. And then each of the doctors are obviously going through their schedules and figuring out which are those patients that absolutely need to be seen. All of us are taking turns, if not um, with just urgent care clinic, but in at least maintaining one partial day a week so that we can kind of clump our urgent patients together, like those certain post-ups you have to see. Hey Rob, what are you um, what are you doing uh, to speak to your patients? What kind of messaging is going out to the patients? We've talked about kind of some of the things we're doing for staff, but what is your patient who calls into your call center? You know, what what is your team kind of telling them? Because at our practice, we believe that words matter, so we're not using words like "Hey, we're shut down" or "closed down." We're not saying things like "Your appointment's been canceled." It's your appointment has been rescheduled, and here's the date that we're going to reschedule it. Understand that we may have to push that back further, but we're planning on you know this being the date, um, and we're not closed down. We're seeing urgent emergencies, and you know if you need to have a telehealth consult with Dr. Williamson, you can do that. These are the types of things that we're talking to the patients about, and I'm curious. So what your mentality is for, for your community there? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely trying to get the message out that we're open for emergencies and urgent care. If people are concerned, they're welcome to call. Our phone ring is probably going to be the most active part of our entire practice for the next couple months. And there's going to be a lot of triage in there, like Liz mentioned. I think I feel pretty good about that. We have one, all of our glaucoma specialists, except for one is working. We don't want to contaminate these doctors. We need doctors just like we're gonna need everybody healthy. So we only have enough patients that have emergent care and urgent type of need to need one glaucoma specialist. Same with retina, we've dropped down to one or two retina doctors. And um, Neil and I are just kind of helping each other out with taking care of the few patients we have. I have a few light adjustable lens patients. Besides that, there might be a few corneal ulcers rarely we need to see. I feel terrible for my fellow because now she's missing out on the last three months of her you know, refractive cataract and corneal experience here, but she's hanging in there with us. She's gonna be a big part of the emerging care scene. She's young, if she does get this condition, she's more likely to do well with it than others. The biggest issue I'm having really is coming out of what we've learned from South Korea and from China and, and now from Italy is the PPE issue. You know, you've got such, and, and, and there have been other forums that I'm participating on where I'm seeing a lot of information, and there are certainly protocols coming out about what we all should be wearing in terms of wearing glasses. It's becoming very obvious that we all need something on the slit lamp. We all need shields on our face, on our uh, some type of clear glasses. We all need an N95 mask if possible. We all we need to be taking the temperature of patients when they hit the door. We need to be taking the temperature of the staff when they hit the door. The staff needs to be wearing masks, but we don't have all this equipment. We just don't, we frankly don't have it. So I'm having a hard time telling my management team and my staff, like, just do the best you can. Like, here's this elaborate protocol list of what is recommended for the ultimate safety for not spreading this disease in our clinic. And they're looking at me like, you're crazy. We don't have any of this stuff. And I was like, I know. I said, but do the best you can right now. So, and by the way, this isn't just going to go away. It's not like in six, eight weeks or June 1st, it's just gonna be like, everybody throw their masks away, let's get back to business. 
this is going to change the way we practice, whether we like it or not, because this is going to taper off slowly. We're going to be wearing masks for a year or more in the clinic, maybe indefinitely. We're going to have yeah. all new protocols for this. This is going to change things. We don't even have the equipment we need right now. So this is one of the biggest things that I'm concerned about going down the road. And have you guys tried wearing an N95 mask? It's awful. Awful. Oh, I hate, talk about air hunger, you know? And we're going daily or like every three days, we're making runs over to the hardware store to try to get N95 masks to help protect the staff who are working because there's such a shortage of everything, just like you mentioned, you know? So, I mean, we're doing everything we can. I think that there's a great, there's a couple of great YouTube videos, one by Dr. Susan Jacob and one by Dr. Canalopoulos, who show that if you use that like a plastic screen and you can actually cut out the holes, at least you can protect some of the aerosolization that occurs when you're at the slit lamp, there are some kind of cost-effective measures we can take there, but it's not easy. And then, you know, how often do you need to change your N95 mask too, right? Yeah, and here's a big shout out to RX Sight who provides these clear glasses to protect your eyes from the UV light when you get a light just for lens treatment. Well, we're out of those because every one of our staff members and doctors are wearing those protective glasses, which is phenomenal. So send more, please. Yeah, the question is like, I was reading an article, which are you guys scouring the news and, and internet as much as I am? Because I'm like just getting overloaded with information. I'm trying to, I'm trying to you know, stay informed, but I read a paper that came out from the University of Nebraska and they're actually, I'm not sure if they have a special center for infectious disease there, but they're one of the, the places that is doing the remdesivir trial, the antiviral, uh, originally developed for Ebola, but seems to be working quite well against uh, COVID-19. But they were doing studies on how and where and how much COVID-19 gets on fomites. And it was amazing the amount of viral shedding that occurs. It seems like unprecedented the amount of viral shedding that, that is on everything, including the air filters and even the air filters down, the, down into other rooms um, on everything you can think of from television remotes to you know underneath the bed like underneath the bed of the patient because of the, the eddies of air currents, they're able to culture you know, viral um, activity. from. So it's, it, it really is, the, these patients, when they're making copies of this, it is just like overload. So you know, N95 masks are great, but like, man, I want a outbreak suit. I wanna be in a complete bubble, okay? Like I want to be, I wanna have a hood on and an and a air tank, like a scuba air tank. Because I'm like kind of freaking out about this. I, I mean, got one of those. I got one of those, Gary. It's full camouflage. <laughs> yes, I will wear it. I will Gary, wear it. what's your birthday? <laughs> yeah, it's coming up. But I mean, that, that kind of gets into the psychological aspect of this, Liz. You brought it up. You know, you're seeing. Tell me about what you're seeing in your patients with, in terms of what they're calling in and and the psychological aspect of like I can't maybe get in to see my eye doctor. What are you yeah. seeing? Yeah, so one comment on what you just said about fomites, like I'm keeping my Amazon boxes a day extra outside on the doorstep because it can last upwards of 24 hours, things I never thought of before. So now moving forward into um, the calls that are actually coming in or the calls when we make to try to delay, postpone, reschedule um, for patients because we're it's a fine balancing act as everyone has mentioned, like that 
patient who has maybe, you know, little more than elective, not just a cataract evaluation, but, you know, what's their age, what's their comorbidities, and we're kind of balancing that to, do they need to come in for this follow-up? And this particularly for our glaucoma and retina patients, right, where maybe we should be pushing them out because exposing them into the office is going to be maybe worse for them in the long run or in the, in the actual, uh, in the next uh, four to eight weeks. So that's a consideration of it. But in these phone calls, there's a sense of desperation that comes from patients because they are truly concerned that if we do postpone their follow-up, especially well-established patients, the fear of vision loss and the fear of not being able to have independence is a real big factor. One thing I've learned is the optometry community, even with their elective patients who are coming in for glasses and contacts and the desperation in their voices too, because the thought of not having spectacle independence. So this fear factor plays on many levels and it makes sense because it is such a vital piece of what we need on a day-to-day -day basis. People look at their vision and rank it as they would rather have cancer than lose their vision. And you know, you take that for granted for granted because we do this every day. But when we're in a position like this where we have to stop and step back and we see what's going on from kind of a bird's eye perspective, it really hits home as to um, what we do and how it impacts the patients that we care for. I think that um... I think that the fear that we're talking about and the psychology of it and the questions of, you know, what are you going to do uh, whenever we do start seeing patients again? Is your office going to look like a scene in Chernobyl, you know, with, with gas masks and everything? You know, what's, what's the thing about that is so much of that depends on therapies that we find. So there's so much innovation going on right now. The second that one of those antivirals ends up working out and reducing you know, uh, mortality significantly uh, in a randomized trial, I think that a lot of that fear is going to go away. There's still going to be absolutely, there's going to be precautions. Absolutely, we're going to change. This has changed how we think about, uh, like Liz said, even receiving an Amazon box. But my hope is, is that whenever, you know, these experts find suitable therapies that you know, we're going to be able to start to think about life again like it used to be. Um, at, at least that's my hope. And, you know, I will tell, tell you one thing, Liz, is, is that, you know, the fear about patients sort of not, you know, sort of, you know, not being able to see their doctor is, is absolutely uh, real with patients not being able to see their provider. Um, and that's why telehealth has been big for us. So we've, we've just now started it this week. And I'm telling you, even a, a 10, 15 minute conversation, you know, over FaceTime or over Doxy or whatever, whatever you're using uh, has gone a long way. Uh, and patients really, really like it. So I think that that's something we look forward to ramping up here. Rob, psychologically, I mean, this is impacting everyone. Uh, how is your, you know, how are you doing? How, how are your other doctors and family and friends doing with this? Yeah, I think for all of us, it's a little bit of a roller coaster, you know. Um, I'm, I'm one second, I'm like, you know, you know, doing everything I can to be as clean as possible. And my kids are saying, Dad, don't you wish you just get this thing already and get it over with and get past it so you're immune to it and get out there and do what you want and not have to worry about this? And I'm like, boy, that'd be really nice. <laughs> so it's like, uh, it, it's hard to know where this is going. Um, we know that we're not going to see the backside of this curve until it 
chunk of people get this in our population and then it kind of runs its course and it's going to take a while in some of our communities. Um, I see a lot of emotional stress from everybody uh, I encounter um, and everybody's cooped up in their houses. Uh, everybody's making hard decisions. They're some of the hardest decisions they've made in their life, adjust their lifestyle. And, uh, you know, you definitely have to stay away, you know, find a way to, to stay sane through all this, you know, this is going to be temporary. Um, everybody's going to be fine. Um, hopefully nobody that you know, or that you love, or, or a friend of a friend is going to get this and suffer a really a tragic event by it. And we want to do everything we can to abate that in, in our communities. Um, and we'll see the backside of this someday, but you know, it's a, it's definitely a pause and it, it makes you feel lucky for how much you have and have lucky for your health and for the great people you have around you that help you. And I can tell you, everybody's going to get back to work and be very grateful for the work that they do and have a whole new perspective on things. And uh, we'll, we'll all look back on this, but history's being written right now. I mean, more than it ever has been, except maybe for 9-11 when that happened and a couple other key events. But for someone, uh, for most of us, this is the most significant and impactful thing uh, financially, uh, emotionally, um, that we've ever seen in our life uh, changing. And, you know, I think that my brother's psychiatrist is going to be very busy uh, in the coming months because a lot of people are going to need support through this. And, and, and like you guys said, we have to support each other through this and there is no right answer. There is no right way of dealing with this. We have to put the prioritize, you know, health first, community, our patients care and what's best for their vision, our staff, you know, trying to go in a logical order here of maintaining a balance of what the priorities are. And then putting the finances last or as far as possible down, but doing what it takes to make sure that we are financially viable on the other side so we can keep offering great service to the community and seeing patients. One thing you mentioned is, um, you know, people are going to have to get this and before we get on the other side of it. And, um, you know, we were chatting a little bit before, you know, there may be, you know, we know New York right now and, and New Orleans and some other places are, are really hard hit, which actually means they're going to get on the other side of it before the rest of the country. You know, Kentucky right now has, I think, less than 200 cases or just maybe 250 cases, which, again, we don't know that that may be the tip of the iceberg, but, you know, those places may open up much quicker because they're on the other side of it. How do we hold each other responsible uh, or accountable to being responsible, I should say, um, when maybe some areas do open back up and other areas have to still be shut down? That's going to be a professional society kind of, um, I think, society-wide thing that we do. What are your thoughts on that? I'm just curious. Well, that's why I don't think that there's any playbook here. Okay, in other countries where this exploded and you had governmental systems that had the authority to shut down the entire country and legally, forcefully keep everybody in their houses and you have a type of society that complies with that, it's a very different animal. You can start to see what's gonna happen by watching them. We are governed at the federal level, the state level, the county level, the city ordinance level, and it is like the Wild West right now across this country. You know, you've got some, like right now, Clearwater Beach last week was, was open. This week it's closed, but probably on the other coast, it could be, it's all over the place. And the people of this country are not ones to listen to authority by nature. And 
we're going to all experience different a little bit in each of our communities because of that and the timing that the politicians in our communities choose to lock things down. And I think that it's going to be a long, long process. I think some of the places that have been locked down already and their communities have done a great job of what we call flattening the curve, right? They also may be the places that they're in the lockdown for longest because you just, it starts ramping up so slowly and then it's going to become the timing of when you open it up. For elective surgery, the governor of Florida, he basically mandated it. So the entire state of Florida is under that mandate. But at some point, there's going to be some communities where this never really gets into mid-state. And they're going to be looking at the governor like, there's no cases in my county. You're telling me I can't operate? I need to, I've got to, you know, I've got to work. There's patients that need me. This is something that's going to be a really unusual process. And I have no idea how that's going to play out, but it's going to be pretty wild, I think. We want to remind uh, uh, all of our listeners and people watching this on Facebook Live or over Zoom to uh, put some comments in the chat section. If you have any questions uh, from our panelists, uh, certainly we can ask them your questions. You can either do that in the Facebook uh, or at the bottom of the Zoom. Um, you know, it's interesting that you that you say that, Rob, because you know what what we're trying to think of is you know ourselves eight weeks from now, twelve weeks from now, um, and sort of forecasting what we got to get back to business at some point, but how do you do that? What does it look like? What types of cases do you do? I think that when our mandate come down, came down from the governor, you know, the big thing was, you know, they're, they're, they're delaying all elective cases because they didn't want to take up space that could be used for a COVID patient. And they also didn't want to take up needed PPE. And at the time I was thinking selfishly, I was thinking, well, you know, we just have a little two-room ASC inside of our practice, and I don't wear an N95 when I operate. So really, is cataract surgery, is that even a part of that? And, and does it make sense to kind of parse out what you can do and what you can't do? Who's taking PPE away? Who's not? What wards or ASCs could potentially be COVID wards and which ones, you know, I don't know how that, I don't know what that looks like. But, but very quickly, you know, as this has progressed, now I'm thinking, do I need to operate with an N95? Do I need to have the patient with a mask and the sheet over the patient in case they cough coming out of anesthesia or something like that? It's just a, a whole new world and whole new reality. Sure. It's, you know, it's these decisions. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to patient care, right? And as long as the decisions we're making and we're doing the best we can to make good decisions for, for patient vision, patient care, it's very hard for any governing body to, to, you know, come at us for that if we're making good sound decisions. But again, it's really tough to say, like, are they going to let cataract surgery come back in an ASC before the hospital setting? What's that gonna do for doctors that operate in the hospital setting? There's more exposure, there's more risks to patients of picking this up, especially elderly patients. All of our cataract patients, most of them are at a high risk group, right? So it's like, um, you know, these decisions that are gonna get made are going to affect people differently and their businesses and their livelihood. And it's kind of uncharted territory and I don't really know how that's going to play out with the governing bodies and all the different, you know, lobbying components of getting us back to work and how, I mean, I'm really um, hopeful that Asterisk and AAO and the AMA and other organizations are already getting ahead of this. I'm assuming they are, but if not, how, here's a shout out to those larger organizations to be looking out for our interests and our patients' interests, because like you said, you can't just delay this forever, 
right? I mean, there's patients that have, we do cataract patients who, you know, of course they could get by another year or two, but are we just gonna wait another two to three years, these patients that wanna see better? And this is like, what's their risk of picking up the virus at a certain time versus the risk of enjoying, you know, great vision for the rest of their life? These are case by case decisions that are gonna have to be made. Ultimately, it's in our hands. And I think that they have to give it to us and the freedom to the doctors to make those decisions that they think are in patients' best interests. Like overall though, I mean, obviously there's gonna be conflict that we're gonna see. Conflict between what, I mean, we see it now, it's playing out between you know the executive um, branch and epidemiologists, right? With that being said, if you even look at what the American College of Surgeons says, um, elective surgeries in the ASCs for those who are healthy can still be performed in this, at this stage. Not to say that we should be doing them, but it does highlight the fact that those patients who are healthy enough to be performed in an ambulatory surgery center, you know, there are gonna be a separate class as compared to those that need to be hospitalized for their actual surgeries. Yes, we have that, but we also have that greater societal responsibility. And that's where the word conflict comes into play again, because you know, what, when is the time that we actually can safely do that um, and do it at the patient's benefit while mitigating the risk of infectious spread, which may take upwards of 18 months to truly say that we're kind of over it all. So I think it will be more state by state than federal. I think we have to really watch closely um, the patient's past history between contact and travel and everything else. And of course, their own personal um, history of, of potential URI symptomatology. But things are gonna become a little more conflicted um, professionally, personally, as well as uh, a little more complex and complicated. The process to get there. Liz, what do you what do you think about the premium channel and like the economy and yeah. maybe if we go into a recession, how this is going to hurt the business and some of the things we really had to do to mitigate all the cuts we've seen at reimbursement and make our practices viable and sustainable. And then if that's the case, are we worried that we may not be able to hire all our staff back? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns that are coming up. I love that you're asking that question because I've been asking myself this, especially given the psychological component of what I've seen with patients and their desire and fear of losing independence. I think that when we start getting back to steady state, right, back up and running, it's going to be 25%, 50%, 75%, but it's going to jump to closer to 150% before we back down to kind of going to what we normally have been running, simply because everyone is waiting to get their surgeries and their appointments in, right? I think this recession is going to rebound a lot quicker because it's somewhat artificial, right? And when it does rebound, and this is, you know, it's, it's critical for Trump's success, but when it does rebound, I suspect that we may see an incline and a bump in younger patients getting LASIK and in older patients opting to have an advanced technology procedure simply because this is going to leave an imprint on us as a generation. Maybe not necessarily the fear of this virus, 
but the fear of what this has, this is something that is unprecedented. And so for us to have that and now understand what it feels like, when, and there's a little bit of that invincibility that is no longer there, that we're all susceptible to this, I think we may actually see a greater number that, that are gonna adopt uh, premium technology options. I don't know. I hope you're right, I really <laughs> do. I mean. I'm trying to be realistic though, because you know, if you look at what's happened to the stock market, if you have a lot of these baby boomers coming in, and let's say that the stock market doesn't rebound, let's say it takes another dip and it doesn't rebound quickly because there's so much job loss and the unemployment rate goes up and inflation starts to kick in and people lost a lot of money in the market, a lot of money that they wanted to retire on, right? This is a very dangerous time for a lot of the high wealth individuals in this country that have so much money tied up in the stock market and they're entering that phase where they're in their retirement phase and i'm just concerned that they're going to they're going to tighten up a little bit and they're going to just feel happy to be alive they're just going to want to come in get the basic cataract surgery and um, it could change our landscape a little bit and we've been living in a very flush time and i don't think until now all of us realized how lucky we've been over the past decade and we've all been riding this wave. So I just think it takes a moment to pause. You just have to be ready for it, I guess. I guess Absolutely. Like you'd rather be prepared for it and be surprised that it's not, you know, and that it's better than you think than to be caught uh, surprised by it. Right. And that coupled with the already 15% cut that's already happened. So there's just a lot of considerations. And obviously, if it's not going to be a premium channel option that's going to increase and we have these cuts, it's going to be volume we're going to have to make up for in order to help take care of, you know, all those within our staff, our offices and ourselves. I almost want to call this like the Chick-fil-A effect. I'm not sure if you guys have had that experience when you're on, it's Sunday and you'd like some Chick-fil-A that it's closed. Yeah. You know, like, everything, you know, it makes me want it more. Like I have to have it, but I can't. And so like Amazon Prime now, I can't get anything delivered until mid-April or the end part of April. And so I feel like societally, we are being reminded that everything we want um, is not always available as soon as we want it. I think that's been a little bit of the problem with LASIK, especially in the younger generation is like, well, I can have it now. I can have it next year. I can have it whenever I want it. Yep. No big deal. Um, and maybe with this as sort of leaving its societal imprint of, I need to get things done when I can get them done, when it's available, because I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold and I need to be prepared. I think by the same token, our older patient population, um, given that the market does rebound and hopefully it does, that same kind of effect may permeate where they say, you know what, I need to have my vision fixed. I need to not be reliant on glasses or the things to be able to see perhaps. Um, and so we may see that. It, that's one way this could go. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I, or anyone said they knew what was going to happen. Um, but I do think that's something. What do you guys think about that, uh, that idea? That's exactly right. That's what I suspect will happen. And I'm not an optimist. I'm, I'm very much a pragmatist. But just, and this is not even a thought that I had until I started getting the phone calls and seeing what the urgent calls that were coming in and recognizing um, the impact that their lack of follow-up appointment or lack of that spot for that routine appointment had on them as patients. So I do think pending that the economy does stabilize, this could be uh, something that we see. We're talking about the economy, we're talking about markets, we're talking about 
procedures and what our practices are going to be able to generate uh, when we come out of this thing. That kind of makes me think about private equity. Um, you know, Liz, uh, I know that you're partnered with private equity. I'm just curious how they've been to work with throughout this process, you know, with the decision making uh, and also what you think about that going forward as they try to you know, uh, sell practices and things like that. What's going to happen if the practices all of a sudden aren't worth as much because people aren't doing as many procedures or choosing as many premium channel options. Have you thought about that? Absolutely. Um, there is there is power in numbers. There's also protection in numbers. As I mentioned earlier, I am so thankful for the group that I'm part of. Being part of CVP, um, you know, it took some of that weight and the burden that the four partners carried on our shoulders we're able to spread that across. And honestly, I am just as much of an employee and a shareholder as every other doctor who is across the organization. So in some respect, it has taken some of the burden and load off of me. And I, and, and I feel guilty even saying that, you know, to the three share, the owners of practice, private practices that I'm speaking with right now. Um, I see that consolidation may also experience an increase um, and people will be willing to take lower multiples um, because they are going through this right now and and with this financial strain and drain um, it's it's going to go to a critical level for some for smaller practices close if not potential bankruptcy in chapter 11 could occur simply because it the cash flow is just not there thus i do think that uh, we may see a bump even though there's been a flurry of activity in the last two years it may not decline at all we may not have hit a peak this artificial pandemic or this pandemic may create an artificial spike in uh, those who are interested in external capital partners Rob, I, um, I'm just curious, you know, we, there's a lot of doom and gloom, uh, rightfully so, going on right now. Um, is there anything positive that's going to come out of this? Um, you know, are, are there any things, whether it be connecting with, you know, family, uh, whether it be connecting with, you know, staff and education and, you know, what do you, is there any positives coming out of this thing? I mean, I have my, uh, I have my freshman at college home, you know, and I'm not, haven't quite figured out yet if that's a positive or negative. <laughs> it's uh, certainly been fun and interesting, but I do think that there's a, actually, I'll probably look back on this as a real gift, um, getting to spend time with my family and, and doing some stuff together. And it's, it's been a pause and, you know, an interesting interruption in my daily routine. Um, so I think there is some positive for sure on the family side. Everybody, I'm sure, is embracing that and is finding a way to really make that a great opportunity to bond with their family and build their relationships there. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the stock market. Um, you know, Gary, you were talking about routines and stuff. I've got this whole kind of like crazy routine in the morning between trying to exercise and watching the stock market and looking at CNN and checking NPR and listening to that serious XM channel, that Dr. Radio and, you know, juggling all these things. So um, it's been kind of interesting to have that time to do that. It's kind of positive. Um, I think there's an opportunity for our practices to maybe uh, batten down the hatches and do some things that you wanted to do for a long time. There might be an opportunity to reevaluate your staff here, you know, and really see, who let, let the true colors come out and figure out 
who really is going to step up and be a, a true partner and a, and a team player in this. And potentially there might be some people in your practices that you realize uh, really aren't a good fit because the way they handle themselves during these stressful times, because it always brings out the best and worst in people when you have these situations. So, um, so yeah, I mean, listen, we're all on this call. Most of us in this country as physicians are very lucky. Most of us have been smart enough to understand that, you know, we're trying to build for a future and putting enough away to survive a storm here in Florida. We're used to having hurricanes. We know that a hurricane can come along and shut us down for a month or two. Blake, you know that, um, you know, Nashville just had a huge, um, you know, tornado that came through that was very disruptive. There's going to be life cycles and events that you have to plan for that come along. But yeah, if you have your health and you've got your family and you're putting food on the table and the people around you are sustaining, then in the big picture, uh, you know, you're going to be just fine. You know, um, our society is so focused on money and so focused on wealth and so focused on the dollar as what the most important thing is. I would lose track like the other countries. They're, they're very different in that way. They, they're about life. They're much more about enjoying life and enjoying the moment. So, you know, I'm going to do my best to probably try to enjoy the moment while I have it because this is never going to come again that I get to hang out with my kids all day for three months good or bad. Liz, how about you? What does your day look like? And how do you think this is, what positives do you think you can take away from this? Um, oh, okay. So a couple of things, you know, <laughs> there's the grind of work that occurs, right? We all get it. It's either the rut of work where there's just too many things on the to-do list that we're not able to get to. But now that a majority of the time I'm not necessarily at work, I really appreciate what I do professionally, but that's a small piece. The two things that I've really taken away beyond, um, I, Rob you know, really said it well, but number one, catching up with friends as well and colleagues who I just don't have the time to necessarily and utilizing different ways to actually interact. So it's very rare that I would FaceTime somebody. It's just not my thing. <laughs> but to actually get on a virtual call with seven friends, you know, some over wine, others are on their elliptical, but we're all just together seeing each other. So that has been really uplifting for my spirit. And then number two, kind of taking time to recenter and find out, prioritize what's important to me. Um, you just kind of go, go, go. And sometimes you're just doing to make sure that everything is being handled. When everything comes to a halting stop, you get to pick and choose what matters the most, explore different things. And, and, and really, I mean, when do I get to play Monopoly, just as Rob said, with my family for three and a half hours? And it shows me that I truly am even very competitive with my kids. <laughs> but uh, I do think that um, it's, it's tough, uh, I think, and there's one component we haven't talked about. There is, uh, from a personal perspective, you mentioned the word psychological you know, several times, but truly for us, we are experiencing it too, not just our patients, not just us worrying about our staff, but we have to worry about ourselves and how we're gonna get through this because we do, we shoulder a lot of burdens. Uh, we carry a lot of weight. A lot of us are the bread earners for our family, but in all that, we need to find whatever that route is. If you're an introvert, you know, take time for yourself. If you're an extrovert, 
do those phone calls and virtual opportunities that you can. Um, don't forget to exercise and do what you can. And I, and I joke and say that I gained 15 pounds, but if it's going to happen, this is the time it's going to happen. So I need to fight that as well. You know, guys, I one one thing I, I failed to mention that is like I wake up with every day. That's the one part that's unsettling to me. And I'm sure you guys have felt this too, is I'm trying to figure out a way that I can be, and I want to teach my family this and kids this too, an opportunity to be helpful or impactful during this time to help others. And I've never felt so um, frozen and unable to help others than I am right now. But at the same time, I'm worried about the safety of the family, about the safety of my father, who's sequestered away. And I've got to figure out a way that I can satisfy that desire to help others. And I'd like to, as an ophthalmic community, I think we're all itching for a way because our hands are all tied, but we all can come together and find an avenue that we can help others in this, in this crisis where we can't do what we normally do. And I don't know if that's volunteering. I know maybe some people have thought about volunteering in the hospital because what if they do run out? In our hospital, we've got five ICU doctors. Three of them have the virus. Oh. ICU, the pulmonologists, they're the guys that take care of the critically ill. So, you know, you hear about things in Italy where they're having to call upon ophthalmologists to come help. So do we go volunteer? So it's something that's just, maybe some of you thought about it. I just don't know what the right answer there is trying to be helpful in this crisis. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, I kind of feel like a soldier that uh, all their buddies are going off to war and you're stuck back home not being able to fight the fight that you you signed up for. You want to be part of this and you want to be helpful and we're stuck on the sidelines. And I, I, I feel that. And, you know, my problem is if I did go into the ICU, I'd have to ask the, the uh, critical care doctors intubated what to do. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a horrible comedy, but I, I hope that's not the case. Uh, we do have a question that's coming from Facebook Live uh, from Doug Moradian. Uh, it says, thank you. Uh, learning about all the realities your practices are now faced with has been extremely insightful. First question, what is the conversation like with your family? How concerned are they about you interacting with patients all day? Uh, it's the first question. And what advice do you have for vendors or partners at this time? I'm certainly not actively selling in this environment, but I want to continue to communicate and be supportive. So, you know, we haven't, we've kind of talked about how we talk to our families about this. I do think that's a concern that we all share with trying to make sure that, you know, we come home and, and wash or change clothes and keeping those boxes outside for an extra day. But, you know, we're not the only ones impacted by this. Industry is, is significantly impacted. What do you guys think about our partners in industry? I mean, we love our partners in industry. I mean, I'm, I feel so close. A lot of my greatest friends are the people I see you know, at meetings who are not just fellow ophthalmologists, but my colleagues in industry. This is impacting them from the top down too. What, what can we do to help them? Or how, how should we advise them about maintaining those relationships with their clients? I'll take that, Gary. I think that, I think that you know, Honestly, one of the one of the best things they can do is what they're doing right this second, which is helping us, you know, with with, with support for for activities like this. You know, the ability for us to, you know, we you have a captive audience now, right? We're all at home, so so the opportunity to to help support webinars and and, and conferences and things like that uh, is better than ever. Um, and and there's also a time limit on it, so I think that's one great thing that they can do. 
the, the, uh, I want to thank all the industry people that have reached out to me personally. And I know many of you have had communications via email or text is very kind and thoughtful. And it's very nice to hear a friendly voice and know that everybody's looking out for us and worried about us. And we know, I think all of us as providers know that there's a tremendous trickle down effect to not just industry, but then, you know, all of the employees of industry and then all of the vendors that industry uses to manufacture and make all the products or devices or drops or boxes or whatever it may be. It's overwhelming the trickle down effect here. And, you know, it really gives a sense that we're all in this together. Um, I've already heard some really reassuring things from different companies about, you know, giving some 60 or 90 day forgiveness on bills that are due because they know that we're strapped financially. And I want to give a huge shout out and thanks to all of the industry that is going to be financially supportive in that way. And we know that that's not easy for you because you all are trying to do the exact same thing as make ends meet. The last thing we want to do is see this event impact all of the, like Blake mentioned, all of the people in industry that we've known and love and built relationships with. So we're as equally worried about just as our own staff as we are about industry and the whole sector. And I think we're just all going to have to figure out a way to work together to get through this, but it's a, it's definitely a team approach for sure. Liz? On the front line, I mean, it's been great to actually see how empathetic they are and recognizing that they're not able to come into our clinics and have the same interactions that they normally were able to before it because that face-to-face -face is really important but for them to actually reach out and say hey this is who you're going to call to get your samples because we know you still need to take care of your glaucoma patients we know you still need these samples i mean that helps to actually solidify relationships and what we do is so built around the relationships and very uniquely so within ophthalmology itself. Um, I do think that we will have a good rebound. I don't think that, you know, 2020 will close without actually leveling out. Um, it's just going to be closer to Q3, maybe Q4. Um, but so appreciative of the different efforts, even something as small as Zeiss having those shields that they're making complimentary to put on the slit lamps. That is such a small but huge um, sentiment that Zeiss is doing. So that is just one small example. And I know that others like this are happening all around, but we're just so appreciative of it. And, it, and that really does, um, it leaves a, a, a big impact on us. Well, guys, and, and, and you know, I'm so thankful. Um, this is therapy for me. We've talked a lot about the psychological aspects of, of what's going on right now, but just being able to see your faces, hear your voices, know I'm not going through this alone, knowing that we're all in this together. Um, you know, it really, it helps me. I hope it's helping other people get through this time. And I want to thank you both for coming on and uh, sharing your perspectives and uh, just again, seeing your faces, uh, you know, really makes me so, so happy. So thank you. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, thanks guys. This has been great. I, I echo Gary's uh, sentiments. Thank y'all so much for coming on. You know, the title of this is Surviving the Storm. And I think that one thing I've learned from you guys today is that you just got to go back. There, there's so much uncertainty right now. You just got to go back to your core values in terms of how to guide you and, and how to survive the storm what to do with patients, what to do with staff, et cetera. And when you start to go back to that and think about that and do the right thing, all of a sudden decisions become easier and easier to make. And I think that's what's going to get us through this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Gary and Blake, for you guys. You do this twice a week. 
you know, committing your time to help us get through this together. So we really appreciate it too. Yeah, I know the whole uh, ophthalmic and industry world appreciates it. Everybody needs to hear some reality and, and some real conversations, you know, and the, um, just the organic nature of this is really the most valuable part of it because we always know that that's where you really you hear things that are important versus scripted stuff that's been put down and edited. So this is such a necessary format. You guys keep up the great work. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys, until next time, be safe, stay healthy. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsor, Allergan, as well as with support from Kala Pharmaceuticals.